Hello, you lover of architecture, and today, interior design. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I call today's episode, Interiors. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast that builds on all that's been accomplished by the faculty and the graduates of the first architecture faculty in Western Canada, founded more than a century ago. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. I got together recently with two graduates of interior design at U of M. Cindy Roddick owns the Winnipeg interior design firm RIDI. Lois Wellwood is the global interiors practice leader at Skidmore, Owings & Merrill. She grew up in Winnipeg, too, and has worked in interior design in Canada and the United States. She currently works with SOM in Los Angeles. We cover a lot of territory in today's conversation, including the fractious subject of the difference between interior design and interior decorating. And we introduce you to the difference between LEED, which is about sustainability, building materials, energy efficiency, and the environment, and the new standard called WELL, which is much more about human sustainability. And on a Winnipeg level, their hopes for the future of the now vacant flagship Hudson's Bay Department Store on Portage Avenue. But we begin with an enthusiastic reunion. Cindy! Gee whiz. <laughs> hey, how are you? You know, that's that's an interesting question. <laughs> I think we all used to say, oh, you know, I'm great. And it's now it's as good as can be imagined, given all of this. Right. How the heck are you? I'm good. I'm really. You two know each other? We went to university together. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like... Before we begin. Would each of you describe your practice for me? Cindy, would you start? It's a little bit more complicated, but um, because I, I have a design degree, but I also have a master's in just facilities management consulting. So I do interior design commercially, primarily, as well as institutionally. And uh, sometimes I work within a larger team. Uh, sometimes I work independently. When I work in a larger team, sometimes that is as a support to architects, and sometimes we bring architects on and they support us. It's a small practice, but in in Winnipeg, it's one of the larger interior design practices. So there's ten of us. We tend to do you know quite complex kinds of projects, uh, larger scale, um, multi million dollar um, projects, which mostly sit in the commercial and institutional arena. And Lois, how do you describe your practice with SOM? Well, SOM is about 1,200 people. So scale-wise, Cindy and I are are really different ends of the spectrum, which is really interesting, I think, uh, in this conversation. So SOM has practiced interiors probably since its inception, and then in 1956 really formalized it. So we often say we are a multidisciplinary firm working in an interdisciplinary manner. So we have structural engineering, mechanical and electrical architecture, of course, interiors, but also city planning and and landscape architecture. 
And so to us, that means we can aggregate ourselves in any number of ways with a client forum. And we do work to scale from very small projects, very uh, almost boutique in nature to multi-million dollar, 10, 15, 20 year projects. Specifically for interior design, we work very often with our architectural colleagues, but we also do what we call standalone work. Uh, where we're working directly with a client and it would be a a tenant-driven design project where the architecture exists and we're we're inserting them into a floor, a couple of floors, a whole building sometimes. Uh, Not unlike Cindy, our practice is really focused on workplace. A corporate office often is the reference, Uh, but we also do residential, multifamily residential. We don't do any single-family we do hospitality work, so with hotels, restaurants. Uh, we do some healthcare. We do quite a bit of education, higher ed mostly, as opposed to K through 12. And we do airports. We toggle back and forth. Um, I, I like to say that we're incredibly flexible. Um, I think the word agile probably gets thrown in there sometimes. Why did you choose interior design, Cindy? I mean, both Lois and I are a few years into our career. Uh, At that time, I think um, it was really encouraged for women who had um, sort of a design sensibility and technical sensibility to be kind of pushed in that arena. Uh, That said, I think my natural inclinations are detail orientation. And I mean, I like macro scale, but I'm very comfortable at a micro scale. That's what you, I think you really have to have that sensibility and that attention to detail to really succeed in this profession. Lois, why did you choose interior design? I competed uh, nationally in high school in track and field. And it was, I was either in the gym or I was in art classes. And so those were the sort of two areas I think I was really interested in. I knew that uh, a professional athlete probably wasn't a future per se. And I thought being a starving artist wasn't really uh, the route. But the creation of three-dimensional space was always something I was interested in in the art that I did. And much the way Cindy described it is my art teacher said, you know, you work really well in detail and spatial integration, spatial relationships. You're a three-dimensional thinker. Architecture may be of interest, but I think interior design is even more suited to you. One of the things I, I think about interior design, the way we practice it, is it's not necessarily understood. I often think of it as interior architecture, and it is truly shaping the experience is in a three-dimensional space. Uh, or spaces, 5,000 square feet to 2 million square feet. And so the work that we do is not applied. It's very much integral to uh, shaping a building, shaping spaces. So that has always been really intriguing to call it interior architecture, maybe small I, small A, because architecture is, you know, sort of a, a protected word in many ways in our industry. But we think about experiences in space and not just what's say applied to the wall or the furniture piece that's selected. It's all part of it, but it is much more than that. Many people outside of your industry sometimes confuse interior Mm -hmm. design with interior decorating. 
What do you think yeah. of that? Oh, that's a problem. That's a, <laughs> it's a huge problem for our industry. Yes. And it's a historical issue. The, the challenge is interior design really only um, started in the 50s in many areas. And the University of Manitoba was a prime example where it, it became a department within the faculty. Uh, there is a difference between professional interior design and because interior design is in some provinces is a protected term in Manitoba. It's not it, what is protected. We have a titles act. It's called professional interior design, but anyone can call themselves an interior designer. That's not protected. Um, as far as the architectural piece, architecture being an architect is protected. That's a protected term. So we in Canada cannot use the term interior architecture. I know in the States it may be different, but in Canada, you will be uh, approached by the uh, professional associations of architects in the various jurisdictions if you use that term. It's a big issue. Um, it's an issue that, um, and I'm involved in our professional practice from our provincial body. It's an issue that we are constantly fighting. Um, the misunderstanding of what we as professionals do. I mean, that's why I was very interested in this dialogue because anything that can help um, move that needle would be very beneficial for the industry as a whole. Every province is different. It depends on the legislation and how it came together. So much of my uh, time in Canada was in Ontario as a professional practicing in Ontario under again, a very similar body that is representing designers in, in Manitoba and then in Alberta. And in Alberta, I'm a licensed interior designer, but you cannot use the term architect in your business name on a business card unless you are a licensed architect. Even if you're not a licensed architect and you've graduated from an architectural school, you cannot use the term architect in your title until you've passed your exams. It's similar here in the States. The American Institute of Architects holds that word as their right to use it and others cannot. So it's a, it's a similar situation. And, and maybe a point of clarity. I think we don't want to wade into interior designers are better than decorators, etc. They're just different. And I think there's a time and a place for decorating, if you will, and there have been some exemplary practitioners in, in that realm. But what we do is very different. And hence why we have uh, associations in each of the provinces and then uh, a body that is called Interior Designers Canada that um, deals with the country as a whole in the same way that each province has a provincial architectural association. It's quite complex unfortunately, but the associations, one of their core missions is A, to protect the name, but the name has integrity starting with your education and then accredited uh, body that has to go through a very rigorous set of tests every, I want to say seven years, Cindy, I think you have to go back through the CEDA accreditation. And then that means also that you are keeping up with your continuing education requirements. You're registered with the association. We all, we too write tests, a lot of them, around a standard of care 
because we do stamp drawings, we can and do often uh, create interconnecting stairs. We work with structural engineers. We change buildings. We introduce mechanical electrical systems, lighting systems. We have to know all about that. We have to know how to specify it. And we also are ultimately responsible for what is in the drawings that are issued for construction and getting that construction permit and getting the occupancy permits. So there's a fair amount of onus on us as professionals to have the knowledge, expertise, and follow through on those. Whereas someone designing the spaces within a home may change the light fixture, but they may not move any of the electricity. They may specify all the materials and finishes throughout that home, and but they're not necessarily licensed or authorized to take walls down and, and change the structure where we would be. I know both of you work a lot in workplace design. Mm-hmm. What are the forces that are affecting workplace design right now? Let's talk about the fun stuff, yeah. right, Cindy? Yeah, let's <laughs> talk about covid You know, there's been a lot of interesting sort of analysis and research that's been done over the course of the the last year from how to reshape the workplace uh, in order to provide sufficient distancing between people and not crossing paths. And I think there's been a shift in the last, uh, I would say, two or three months to look at you know, how are people actually functioning outside the office now? There was a real interest and uptake in people's acceptance of working outside the office and really liking it. Now, um, I think there's been a shift to individuals saying, you know what, maybe this isn't the panacea. This is something that, you know, it doesn't work well for young families. Now that individuals are, are living it and working in that environment, they're not necessarily um, enjoying it as much. That's one issue. I think the whole mechanical issue is going to change zone um, HVAC systems. Um, there's some, been some really interesting things happening in um, China. I think they are going to start to um, move into the North American market. I think there's going to be some really interesting things happening um, around uh, transitioning knowledge from sort of the healthcare environment into the workplace environment in regards to material selection and in regards to um, antimicrobial finishes and things like that. Lois, uh, how much thought do you give to interiors that will attract specific kinds of employees, giving them what they want or giving the employer something that will be a magnet to draw employees? Uh, Workplace has tended over the last five years to veer towards a very much a one-size-fits-all, reduce, reduce, reduce square footage per person. And the human element of it, frankly, was being overlooked in many ways for uh, reduced real estate, manage costs. And I don't think people were having great experiences at work frankly. We talked about amenity spaces and these great centralized spaces of interconnecting stairs and the the great kitchens and food offerings. But when you went back to your office and you were maybe not even an arm's length from the person beside you, that wasn't great. Acoustics were a huge challenge. 
and what was happening is to offset that everyone was putting earbuds in and listening to music so now people aren't talking to each other in my mind the real benefit of being in an office is the sharing of ideas we don't all collaborate 100% of the time but tacit learning hearing that conversation from a senior manager just a couple of rows down or across the way and learning a lot more than you would just on your own all those things are really important but we it seemed like we were doing everything or being pushed towards doing everything to squeeze the most amount of people into a space and creating not an ideal situation for them. What COVID has done for us is pushed us more quickly. Maybe it's a sea change. That might be an overstatement to think about what workplace means. We do tend to want to go to a single solution. You know, working from home now, we trust everybody. You can do it. Let Maybe that's the answer. Or we'll bring everybody back to work, you know, because they miss each other. I don't think it's an either or. I think we've learned that we can make both work. So what is it about focused heads down work that could be best at home and come to work for mentoring, collegiality and engagement in ways that talking to each other across from the screen that we're all using will never replace. I think we have an amazing opportunity with organizations to really talk about culture and how culture exists within the workplaces that we create. And it's a place they want to be and they can thrive and they have choices. I'm going to work from home today. I'm going to let my team know if we need to connect, Zoom's still going to be around and I might be at home but then close Zoom and I'm going to get some thinking done. And then tomorrow I'm going to come to the office and we've all agreed on that. So might be a bit more planning. We've already found that working from home takes an incredible amount of planning because I can't turn around and say, you know, hey, Cindy, take a look at this. I I got a Cindy, are you available right now? Okay, let's get, you know, let's get a Zoom call set up. Okay. It, it takes probably 15 minutes out of every hour to just get organized. So I'm optimistic that what has the potential is that we don't go back to normal, that we look at this as a moment to reconcile the things that weren't great about the office, optimize the things that were, and create experiences for employees that they can really thrive in ways that they they feel like they're contributing. They have a modicum of control uh, over their lives. And that means you might stop working at four and pick it up again at eight. And that's okay because the work's going to get done. We're all global now and it doesn't matter. We talk in many with tools we didn't have before. So I think it's an immense opportunity. Lois did, you know, hit the nail on the head. I I think that there's been so much pressure on real estate and and not maybe not so much in Manitoba, but from a North American perspective, there's been huge pressure um, to downsize real estate. And the trend was, well, we'll take space from the individual and we'll give it to the sort of communal use within the real estate. So we're not changing the overall real estate that we're renting or we're building. We're just going to apportion it differently. And so it was all being taken from the me space, pushed to the we space, and those individual spaces became somewhat intolerable. I mean, I've 
worked in Europe, that's worse than North America um, in regards to the amount of individual space um, that is attributed. I think this has forced us to reassess and it'll be really interesting to see how organizations respond as we move out of COVID. Can we talk a little bit about beauty and utility and wonder? I want you to brag a little bit. Tell me about your (laughs) most beautiful, most appealing designs lately. Lois? One of the things when we've talked about beauty of late is thinking about dignity and a, a broad range of people and what is it about space that makes people feel welcome, invited, and engaged. And that is, I, I think, some of the tools we've, we've found to be promising in that are uh, elements of biophilia. And so that's bringing nature into spaces. That's thinking about natural light, access to views, interior lighting, you know, circadian lighting based on circadian rhythms starting to be thought about a lot more. So those are a few examples that um, they, they cross uh, borders and they they cross cultures. Most cultures all value nature and connection to it. That can be challenging. You know, I, I spent almost five years in New York, and when you're on the 45th floor of a tower in downtown Manhattan, nature isn't probably something that that you see out your window. Uh, in fact, you're probably looking at a you know brick wall uh, cross back lane. So how we think about those interior environments and how we introduce elements of nature. I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, just a bunch of color is going to make people feel great. And it can, if you're Google, that works for Google, but I don't think it works for many others. So spaces that have clarity of circulation, grounding that plan in real clarity around circulation so you don't need signage everywhere, that people can see each other, uh, that they, they feel like there's a culture that they can participate participate in. Uh, You know, a a favorite project of late was for one of the big financial institutions in the U.S. And they had a tech center in Brooklyn that, uh, you know, was an old check processing facility, which really was, had, had its time, it played out. And they had a second floor cafeteria and they said, we just need a new cafeteria. It's a little out of date. And we said, well, we don't actually think that's what you need. We think you need a place for people to come and connect in ways that they don't in their day-to-day work. So 65,000 square feet on that floor. Uh, so an, an immense opportunity. Uh, it was on the second floor, so you could see the parks adjacent to it. And so we stripped that space out and started to create a series of rooms that were in, interconnected libraries, games rooms that, uh, you know, had some pretty interesting full contact ping pong and things like that, as it <laughs> turned out. And I say that jokingly, it was, it, they had teams and games from scratch kitchen. You could create your own meals, uh, retail part to it, a, a coffee shop that it was okay to go there any time of the day and have coffee and meat. While it may not sound like it's you know, cutting edge, bleeding edge. For them, as a financial institution that has real institutional requirements and regulatory requirements, this was a big step forward to them in terms of how 
to bring a sense of place that wasn't there before. And then the fun, and I think the beauty in what we did is we said, let's make it authentic to the place. And Brooklyn has amazing parades, different events. So we, the graphics in it brought the most celebrated parades and, and, and celebrations in Brooklyn. And they're, they're bright and they're lively and they have farmer's markets. So we used images of beautiful food as we think food is beautiful. Um, and it, it created a sense of place that was just like no other. And it's sort of been held up as an example in this organization for what they want to do. And Cindy, for you, tell me about one of your favorite recent designs. I guess the most recent is a law firm that we did, a firm by the name of Taylor McCaffrey in Winnipeg. They had been in their space for 35 years and they really wanted to take this opportunity to transform themselves uh, in in a way and one of the things we do at the beginning of any project is we really look at sort of what the strategic objectives are of a company look at their goals and objectives as a business and you know attraction and retention of staff is a huge one and in, in the law industry as well so we looked at, as, as Lois said, what's working, what isn't working? You know, what are things that we want to hold on to and, and take with us in this new environment? And we spent a fair amount of time, you know, looking at precedents. We, t- we toured. Um, we went outside the city and we toured other law firms. We, you know, looked at what was on the bleeding edge and, and where their comfort level as an organization, what their culture was and making sure that we were translating who they were and we were translating that into the physical space. So connecting their brand and they had just gone through a rebranding exercise. So, you know, ensuring that that the brand was consistent both from the printed material through to the physical space so, so that, that there was there's no disconnect both for a client or for an employee, that that message was inherent um, from the moment you walked into the space, through the space, and to the workspace. Uh, issues of, you know, respect of the client, client-centered space. They had something that was sort of sacrosanct to their organization. It was called the Blackstone Lounge. And it was where new lawyers were invited up or any major partner celebration. It was to them, it was one of the things they were known for within their market. So we brought that front and center and we actually opened that up to, to the reception area. So when you entered, you had, it was a very inviting, very, um, that's where the money was spent, a very, very significant space. Um, which was uh, also linked to their conference suite. All of that is to say that we we really tried to res- respect their brand, transform the organization, and put them sort of at the forefront of the industry within the local market. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Um, not to be the provocator here, but maybe just a little bit. Because I think um, we've also been talking to clients ironically, about their client spaces. And so we do do law firms. It'd be great to kind of talk about the future of law, maybe on another call, because they're going through some real evaluations of how does law remain vital and pressure on fees, attraction and retention. Everybody's a tech firm now. And, you know, the Googles and Apples of the world pay exemplary salaries. So it'd be really interesting to talk about that. One of the things we have tried to 
find a, a balance with clients is that while the client-centric spaces are really important, the people that are there the most are your employees. And we, we've all seen those projects where the reception is extraordinary and, and the meeting rooms are beautiful. And then you open this other door and it's like, is this the same organization, right? And so what is it that can blur a line at that transition point where it doesn't feel like it wasn't given the same care and consideration? And, and we understand we're spending clients' money. It's theirs. We, it is our responsibility to think, think about it, be careful with it, and respect their wishes, if you will, but in some ways help them think about all of the other elements that make a successful organization. And I don't know about you, but of late, we're certainly finding people that come to interview with us. They're interviewing us as much as we are interviewing them. And I have to think, you know, all our clients are going through that too. So what is my environment going to be? What is your diversity program? What is your plan for flex hours? You know, where I work, I want to be comfortable. I want to feel like I'm respected and I'm valued. So how does that translate into the physical space? Yeah, I mean, I find that our clients are as interested in, in their clients as they are as interested in their staff. And I mean, Taylor McCaffrey, as an example, you know, the Blackstone Lounge, which was hidden in the past, is front center, but it's not just for clients, it's for everyone. Because it it's an environment for everyone within the organization and it's used, it's almost inviting the client in to the organization because it acts as this bridge space between the reception area and the and the workspace. And we did a very similar kind of piece uh, for uh, Cargill Grains headquarters, Canadian headquarters, bringing that staff element like more front and center adjacent to the reception area, space that can be used for receptions, space that can be opened up, but not being afraid to bring who they are forward to the face of the client. And I think it makes those organizations a little bit more human and more approachable. And it actually honors their staff. And their staff, I think there's an appreciation there. My research tells me that we all know about LEAD, right? Uh, leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. But there's a now a new measure called the well-building standard. What is it? If I could really summarize it in a simple way, and not uh, not that it is in any way simple, because it's and it's really important. Lead tends to be about the building, and what lead didn't necessarily shine a light on or spend a lot of time on is what goes inside that building, i.e., what are the people spaces and how are they designed and what are the measures with, with which they must adhere to. And so that's what WELL has done, the WELL standard, if you will. It, it was six principles. It's now 10. Uh, they deal with things like quality of water, quality of air, materiality, uh, specifications and toxicities, etc. The other thing that WELL does that LEAD doesn't necessarily do is there is a follow-up uh, test and validation on well 
designated spaces. And I believe it's 18 months after move-in, they come back in and third party do the testing for it to make sure that what you committed to is holding up. And there's things like the no soda, uh, high sugar drinks aren't a part of it. It's it's really quite extraordinary really? in terms of what it thinks about yeah. mm-hmm. exercise, movement, diversity, yeah, diversity, accessibility. Yeah. A lot of it isn't. I mean, there's design elements to it, but a lot of it is operational. A lot of it is policy driven. There's like lead. You can certify a building. So we're looking at City Place downtown as a building that we will be certifying. Or you can certify a workplace. A tenant can certify their space as being well. It's very broad. LEED tended to be building design, building construction. This is more policy and operations and design. It's a little bit broader. I wanted to ask you on behalf of the students at the University of Manitoba who are considering a career in architecture or may already be immersed in it. For them, when it comes to interior design, What should they think about? I'll go first. Sure. I left the practice for, I started another business and left the practice for a period of time. And I came back to the practice because I love learning so much about so many aspects of society. Unlike, you know, being an accountant or a lawyer, there's obviously breadth there. But in our business, you can learn so much about so much, you know, from how does a dental operatory work to uh, what does a lawyer do and, and how do they function within their organization? Because we function in a very detailed fashion, you learn a lot of depth about those organizations. It's a wonderful career from the perspective of creating opportunities to really enhance people's lives where they work or where where they heal or where they live. Architects as well have a similar influence, but we really touch people. So it's pretty special. And Lois, a word from you on this? This As long as I have been practicing, um, I do find there are so many things I'm still learning. It isn't the same thing every day. And that that in, it, in itself is, is very exciting. Obviously, we in our toolkit of knowledge, if you will, um, there are many things we do know. And so you can reach deep into that to inform what you're doing. But there are so many advancements in, in technology and building systems, in materials, in lighting, and then the ever-changing nature of the work that our clients do, and how we are challenged in the best of ways by uh, grads that, that join us and the ways that they're thinking. and doing. Mm-hmm. So that, that for sure, I think one of the most uh, perhaps powerful and equally daunting on any given day is how much we can influence the experience that pe- experiences that people have. That's a big deal. And it's really important in terms of what our industry does, that we, that we take that on. It's an honor to be let into an organization, whether it's a lawyer or a legal firm or a financial institution, and they share everything with us about who they are. And it is our 
really great opportunity to interpret that in physical space and make the organization the best it can be in that space that they're in and make their people the best that they can be. Same in education, same in airports. What's, what is the true passenger experience in hospitals? How do we make it okay or better for patients? Hospitals are tough places. How do we, how do we do that? And we have that in our role and in our, our responsibilities. And it's, it's incredibly exciting. The other thing that you hit on as well, Lois, is that there's so much for so many different types of uh, talents within the industry. Mm -hmm. And there's a home for a creative person. There's a home for a, you know, deeply technical person, home for researchers. There's a home for, you know, data geeks. Um, I think many times we think of it as a very simplistic kind of view of what interior design is, but it, it is very broad and it's very deep. And I do think that a lot of different talents can make a, make a home there. Lois, I know that you're in Los Angeles, so you might not have got the news that the giant flagship store of the Bay has closed downtown on Portage I Avenue. I did hear that news. It's very hard news. I mentioned it to you because as well, I know that you did the interior design for the Hudson's Bay Company headquarters in New York City, uh, which was an absolutely stunning design. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, whether it was an emotional experience or whether it was for you, Cindy, realizing that this giant anchor of downtown Winnipeg, the store is gone. We don't know what will become of the structure itself. It may be a grand opportunity, but you two must have spent time as children there, did you? Oh, yeah. I have a Hudson's Bay blanket. and I know that sounds really corny, but it is important. It is part of our fabric of being Canadian. I think it is an opportunity. I think that it isn't as doomed as maybe some would feel. It's a huge, costly undertaking that anyone would um, have to face. But it's got some good neighbors, well, it's an extraordinary building, too. Well, it's very well suited to um, education. It has the University of Winnipeg next door. I think that it's, given its location, um, given its neighbors, I I think there's a future there. Right across the street, Cindy, by the way, from the brand new Inuit Art Center at the Winnipeg exactly. Art Gallery. That's exactly. right. It's having a huge impact already. The other thing, you know, when you mentioned the Winnipeg Art Gallery, there is this lovely interplay between those two buildings when the sun hits that facade of the Hudson's Bay building and how it reflects on the Winnipeg Art Gallery. It's rather poetic. It's an extraordinary building, I think, with the right developer, a lot of community engagement. We could get that right in a lot of ways, and it could be a gift back to Winnipeg. And not just a select group of people, but for the city uh, you know, to honor that. I think opportunity exists. You know, I think similar um, emotions were felt when the Eaton's, you know, store was closed and demolished. But it's created a very vibrant um, nucleus within the downtown. And uh, I think that the Winnipeg downtown, it, when you look at the area that the downtown actually covers and you look at most other downtowns of similar uh, populations 
our downtown is is really big. It covers way too much area for our population. And so we lose that density. And I think that when the Eaton's closed and we new density has been created in that little the shed, I think there's another opportunity here. And I think people shouldn't be afraid of it. I, I think that there's going to be creative people that will put their minds to, to a solution. So... And my hope would be that there is um, is a larger vision for that, for the linkages between the shed and and the call it a precinct, call it um, you know a, a, an area that can have great synergies. That we don't just think about that particular building and that site, but how does it contribute to the greater whole? Revitalize that part of downtown and extend it out. You know, healthy cities we know have activity from early in the morning until into the evening and on the weekends. Living, um, working, shopping, entertainment all together makes a very vital downtown. Healthy cities also have great streets and roadways and they have cars and pedestrians and cyclists and I think it's an immense opportunity for the city but it's going to take some patience and um and will i think and like i say not just for I, I hope it isn't just for the benefit of a few people that it can be part of the whole city what an inspiring pair you are thank you for agreeing to spend this time with me great to see you lois likewise cindy catching up yeah yeah well it's i i'm sure i have your contact information but i'm, I'm i'll be reaching out let's stay and stay in touch Lois Wellwood is the Global Interiors Practice Leader of Skidmore Owings in Merrill. She grew up in Winnipeg. She joined us from Los Angeles. Cindy Rodick owns the Winnipeg interior design firm called RIDI. Thanks for the help to Professor Jay Sung Chan of University of Manitoba and to Finn McLeod of SOM Chicago. You can find us on most podcast apps and you can follow us on Twitter at Prairie D Lab. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab.